My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. The hollow earth, UFOs, aliens invading, fluoride in the water, they spray our skies daily. When I talk about these things, they think I'm crazy. There's no escaping anymore, the evil that we're facing. Illuminati mind control, they're sacrificing babies. The end of days, but anyways, my family thinks I'm crazy. What, they don't want to listen to you? No, they don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They're just like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again <laughs> with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah, so who are we talking about today, Matt? The mana is everywhere, from the big island to your front porch, thanks to today's guest, Buzz Coaston, who joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, episode 246. Thank you so much for tuning in. Like I said yesterday, this is the final year of 2022, and we are jam-packing the RSS feed with episodes. This is a new episode, and you can expect another swap cast, not just tomorrow, but today, as well as a new episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. So stay tuned and also be sure to check out our newest episodes of Esoteric America on Rockfin. Episode 16 will be premiering on YouTube this Thursday. And I just had Donut, my friend Donut, on the show. So you can look forward to a 2022 wrap-up with Donut. And if Juan and I can get together, we will do a 2022 wrap-up. Did I say 2020? 2022 wrap-up with Juan as well. So thank you so much, folks, for being here. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Buzz Coaston. I actually tell the story of the birth of spiritual pizza in the, in the print book and in the audio book, I have some people actually talking about the birth of spiritual pizza as well as the But my friend Ala, who was one of the people who introduced me to Kalalau Valley, she told me that she was there the day they did it. And she said, we had been, we had had a lot to eat for a while. It was just plain old rice and beans for a long time. And then somehow all the ingredients for a pizza showed up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Today, we have someone all the way across the great ocean in the center of the beautiful islands of Hawaii. I, at least I think he's still there. That's where his book takes place. Welcome Buzz Coaston to the show, here to talk about his book, Spiritual Pizza, Demana is Everywhere. And I'm excited 
I've heard your conversation on Zero with Sam. I've got to take a slice out of the PDF you sent me. Buzz, welcome to the show. How are you today? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. My family thinks I'm crazy too. <laughs> all right, all right. Glad we got that question out of the way. And I do appreciate you being patient with the scheduling. I know we had one or two meetings that didn't transpire that were planned on transpiring. So here we are making it happen all in good time. Oh, as the hippies say, it's it's all good. It worked <laughs> out fine for me. I, I, I had a lot of stuff to get done. And those delays only helped me get my stuff done in time for this. So it was perfect timing. Wonderful. Yeah. And you did, you did mention that. I, I probably shouldn't have rushed you but i was excited about what you you said and and i felt like it was good timing too considering we had just started our new podcast which is not this one a separate podcast esoteric america where we kind of focus on one place at a time and we definitely want to have you in on a future hawaii episode but for now we're going to talk about your book and and as far as I understand, you know, you're not the conventional, at least you weren't the, the conventional author of the new age variety. You're somebody who was working in the sort of corporate world, had a sort of midlife awakening and, and realized that you needed to go on a vision quest. Am I getting anything wrong there? Am I leaving anything out? No, well, you know, that's a very good summation. You know, I, I came with it to at a crossroads in my life when I was just uh, about to turn 50. And um, my old life that I had been living as a corporate uh, sales executive seemed to be falling away. And I didn't know what was next. And I needed to figure that out. And I needed to figure it out at a rather quick pace because I was also running out of money at the same time. So um, that prompted my vision quest to, to go to Hawaii and to um, to really, uh, you know, find some answers. And uh, so that's uh, part of what this book is about. The book talks a little bit about the vision quest, but the result of the vision quest and uh, my life after that, uh, it changed in such a way that I not only did I leave corporate America, but I went and lived in a Hawaiian jungle with uh, hippie outlaws making pizza. And uh, I tell about that story in the book. I love it. So where did you start? I mean, you, you make your way to Hawaii. Had you been there before? What about Hawaii drew you in? Because, you know, when I think Vision Quest, my personal experience, I think Southwest, you know, Arizona, maybe somewhere in the plains, some some great mound somewhere. You know, there's a lot of places to go for a Vision Quest. What what drew you to Hawaii initially? Well, I, I, you know, and I've been to the Southwest, but not on the Vision Quest. But uh, the thing that drew me to Hawaii was uh, the fact that it's so beautiful. It's just, it was such an exotic uh, place for me. Uh, I had never been to anything like it. And I had been going there as a tourist for at least 10 years before I uh, went on this Vision Quest. So I was very familiar with it as being a spiritual place. You know, it's, very, it's got a very high vibe. I don't know how to say it because, um, you know, it's got the best and the worst of that uh, thing going on in Hawaii. But a lot of people there are really tuned into the mana and, uh, you know, uh, the, the vibe of Hawaii is very different from anything you're going to find anywhere else. So that's kind of the motivation. And and uh, to be honest with you, I thought that uh, 
you know, if I did really go broke and, and I was flat out busted and I never had a way up again, then at least I would have spent the last run in Hawaii. And so that was part of the, the idea of going on a vision quest too. <laughs> right. I'm sure it's a lot easier to be homeless under a coconut tree on a nice beach that, than maybe like in some awful urban somewhere in the in the 50 states. So yeah, I I I very much relate to that and having a few friends now through this podcasting community. I've met some folks who live in Hawaii and actually a close friend of mine who was my best friend uh very young age he lives in hawaii now but, but the reason i bring that up is because my friend roman who i'm sure after hearing this he'll probably invite you on to his show he has a podcast called rising from the ashes and he spent a considerable amount of time in hawaii and one thing that he told me is that hawaii has this volcano energy it has this great and i i think it it's pele i hope i'm not getting this wrong but Pele right. has this energy where she'll chew you up and spit you out or she'll embrace you and keep you there forever, right? There's this sort of magnetism. Right. And when you think about a volcano, I mean, it is this incredible magnetic uh, force that's surely emanating from it. So that kind of stirs stirs up my imagination. You think of, you know, the the lore around things like fire sprites and the types of energy beings that might dance around the the volcano it's definitely a, a magical place there in the the ring of of fire so let's go well you know in, uh, in 2000 uh, what was it 2014 i think it was i was just seeing a an anniversary date eight years ago around this time I was living about nine miles from the volcano when it was deciding it was going to move into a Pahoa town and take out the local shopping mall. <laughs> and it almost did. It got within a few feet of knocking down the buildings and then just stopped. And uh, that was eight years ago. And uh, and then uh, probably about four years ago, the volcano wiped out about half of Leilani Estates in, in the in the Puna section of uh, Hawaii and uh, the island of Hawaii. And um, and I had lived again. I was uh, gone at that time, but friends of mine suffered through that. And a house that I had lived in was only you know like the borderline between the volcanic uh, lava and the house I used to live in was like the street. It was pretty interesting living near there. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, no, that that's incredible. It might have felt like Armageddon. I mean, geez, magma. I've seen oh. images of, of the magma. It's like this moving, you know, globulous, amorphous, like, being, you know, lighting everything near it on fire. Well, the, the Hawaiian lava moves very slow. You know, it, it doesn't, you know, it's not going to take out a village immediately. In fact, it moves so slow that you have time to prepare for it and get out of its way. And people have moved houses and things like that at certain times. But it will, uh, you know, it continually does this. It's been doing it for 60 million years. The islands are built uh, by this volcanic hotspot, and then uh, they move. They're, they travel about the size of the way you, you, the length of your hair grow, will grow. So about the, as fast as your hair will grow in a year, these islands are drifting to the northwest. And they're, you know, you know, dissolving into atolls as they go. 
But, um, you know, they're temporary production and they keep being built and destroyed. And it's an ongoing, uh, you know, process. It's kind of like uh, all of life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It has that has that really symbolic, almost like a microcosm of what's happening on a very, very large, large level. I love that comparison, especially considering... It's thought of as a goddess, the, the image of growing hair, or at least it grow, it, the lava moves at that pace, you know? Right. So what, Go ahead. what can you say about your experiences in Hawaii before this? Had you had any sort of mystical encounters or, or things that were strange that kind of planted that seed of like Hawaii's where I'm going on a vision quest? Where I mean, you said you, you spent, a, you know... A, a lot of time right. there as a tourist was there anything during that time that kind of clued like hints of of what was to come right yeah in 1995 i went uh it was uh i i left at the in the beginning of a huge blizzard in the northeast u.s and i got an airplane and went to Melbourne for a business meeting you know one of these junkets uh, sales junkets for the company and um and when I got there, it was just magical. <laughs> and I thought, I want to move here. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I want to move here. And, and I'm going to find a way. <clears throat> and that was in 1995. And then in 2001, I accidentally moved to Hawaii. I lived there for six years, uh, you know, more or less, on uh, two different islands. Now, you say ac so accidentally. Can you elaborate on that what do you mean accidentally well after the during the vision quest uh, i i um i met some people uh, who were living on the big island of hawaii and they were living in a little grass shack in the middle of nowhere off the grid and we kind of kept in contact and one day they sent me an email saying uh hey you know we're coming to the mainland uh, for about six months and we hope you'll come visit us when when we get there and I thought, wow, I thought, well, who's going to live in their house? <laughs> so I asked them that, and they said, well, no one. And I said, well, how about me? And so I moved into this little off-the-grid shack that had uh, uh, one little solar panel, virtually no electricity, um, and um, it had running water because we had a rainwater system where the roof captured the rain and poured it into a redwood tank, and then I had a pump that pumped it into the house. And that was... Uh, you know, uh, very rustic. And I, and I thought I was going to live like that for six months and then come back to civilization and rejoin everything. And then 9-11 happened uh, about three months after I got there and I saw what was going on and I thought, well, I'm not going back. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to stay, but I'm not going back. I just saw how the side went down, you know. Right, I mean, okay, I, okay. I was, in sales, I was in sales and marketing for 20 years. I know a psyop when I see one. And, uh, and I saw what it was doing <laughs> and I was like, wow, these guys have got some planned here. This is bigger than just, you know, the normal stuff going on. And I also spent a lot of time on airplanes. You know, I would spend at least, uh, I don't know, two weeks a year flying around places. So I knew that that was going to be impacted as well. And so I just decided I was going to opt out of all of that. And I, I was already just, I was already on the edge. I had taken a two-year unpaid sabbatical, and and I didn't really want to go back anyway. So this was just a perfect excuse to blow it all off and, and to take the risk, even though uh, it was a crazy risk when you think about it.
Right. Now, these outlaws, these are not the same people that, that left for the mainland and, and gave you the spot. When did you meet the, the outlaws? Well, that, that's an interesting story, too. So on my vision quest, a lot of things happened. But one of the main things that happened during this vision quest was that the the, the name Kalalel Valley kept being mentioned to me by people on a random basis. You know, it wasn't like I was asking about it. I would just be talking to them, and all of a sudden, this Kalalel Valley would come up, and they would tell me about whatever their impression was. And there's usually one of three things, or maybe all of them together. There would be a discussion about the community back there, sometimes referred to as the outlaws, or a lot of times referred to as a spiritual community. Uh, then there was uh, the library. Everybody got a big kick out of the library. And then the other thing was the spiritual pizza. And um, and those three things kept coming up and about all this. And I, I met people along the way on every island I went to who either mentioned it, they had been there. In fact, I stayed at a house on the big island, a, a house of a friend of a friend, and I was able to stay there because he was in Kalalau Valley at the time with another friend of his. So, uh, you know, and then so I, then when I moved to Hawaii, I, I moved into this little off the grid neighborhood and several people there had lived in Kalalau. And then they met, they introduced me to the mayor of Kalalau, a guy named Ronnie. Hmm. And so this Kalalau thing just kept coming up and coming up until finally I thought, you know, I'm going to have to go there because you know, what, what else could this be about but me going there? And my 50th birthday was coming up and I thought, I need to spend my 50th birthday in Kalalau Valley. And so uh, I tell the story of uh, in the book of how I hiked in and all the adventures I had along the way. And then what happened to me in that first time I went in. And uh, that's all in the first section of the book. And in the audio book, by the way, you can hear me tell, tell this same story. Right on. Yeah. And uh, well, let us in on a little bit of it. I mean, of course, people are going to check out the book and the audio book, but uh, but any any compelling uh, twists to well, what yeah, you expect to happen? Yeah, I'll give you a. There's a lot of stuff that happened to me uh, between the time I uh, tried to get on the airplane to the time I actually made it to the valley, and then stuff in the valley. So I'll give you a little short synopsis of this. A lot of synchronicities happened to me along the way. Uh, first of all, I was, even though I knew I had to go, I really didn't want to go. I, I wasn't an experienced camper. I didn't live outdoors. I was an outdoor guy. You know, my idea of, of camping was staying at a Holiday Inn Express or a Motel 6, but, you know, not actually living outdoors or anything like that. So, you know, here I was, I was about to go in and live in a jungle <laughs> without any idea of how to do that. And uh, so, you know, that was kind of holding me back a little bit. And so when I tried to get on the plane, I would forget things like my wallet or my ticket or my sleeping bag and things like that. Eventually, all of it came together. I got on the plane. I got there. I had a couple of extraordinary experiences getting me to the trailhead. When I got to the trailhead, I started hiking. And then I lost my wallet that had my ticket and my money and the same things that I lost before the trip, I was lost on the trail. And then I had to make a decision on the trail whether to go in without going back and looking for it or to go back and look for it. And because I was at, because this was called Little Valley, I went in 
without looking for it. And I figured I'd decide uh, what to do about it when I got out. And that would be a month later. And so you can find that story in the book. Right on. Now, this spiritual pizza, it's an interesting concept. How was this born? There's a sort of uh, a story behind this as well, huh? Right. There is a story in the, I actually tell the story of the birth of spiritual pizza in the, in the uh, print book and in the audio book, I have some people actually talking about the birth of spiritual pizza as well as the But uh, my friend, Ala, who was one of the people who introduced me to Kalalau Valley, she told me that she was there the day they did it. And uh, she said, we had been, uh, we had had a lot to eat for a while. It was just plain old rice and beans for a long time. And then somehow all the ingredients for a pizza showed up. And so uh, she said there, you know, we had to make a couple of pizzas and, uh, and and then she describes, you know, the whole process she went through of, you know, I couldn't wait for this thing to happen. It was going to be just the, you know, I knew it was going to be the greatest and all this kind of stuff. And then she said, when they got it, uh, Ronnie, the mayor, uh, there was a big silence as everybody was eating their pizza. And then Ronnie said, you know what this is? This is spiritual pizza. <laughs> and everybody said, yeah, you're right. And from then on, uh, spiritual pizza became a tradition in Kalalau Valley. And so people would hike the Kalalau Trail uh, just sometimes just to get some spiritual pizza. And in fact, there's a video online I've seen of a guy who actually did that and went into the valley and got his pizza made. Now, when you say the ingredients show up, like off of a boat or is somebody growing tomatoes <laughs> in Hawaii? Well, uh, so so the, the ingredient list for the spiritual pizza is very mundane, uh, but it goes like this. You need uh, canned tomato paste. Uh, to make the sauce you know you don't want to be lugging in big cans of tomatoes with water in it you want it all the water out we got water in the valley so you want to bring in tomato paste you want to bring in flour you want to bring in yeast and you want to bring in cheese and uh, you bring in those things and then uh, the outlaws will whip up pizza for you and that was kind of the word kind of went out and so people started hiking in with the ingredients not just you know they didn't show up by accident people showed up with the ingredients with the intention of having a spiritual pizza made in fact pierce brosnan came in one time on his 50th birthday for that event that's how well known it became really that's interesting yeah i imagine there's a lot of uh uh, people of all different backgrounds and varieties in a place like Hawaii it tends to draw people of all types. Now, there's a sort of duality that you mention with the outlaws, a sort of, you know, maybe a rough edge. Obviously, the spiritual pizza is, is, is maybe a, more of a, a rosy highlight, but can you speak to, to that element? I mean, did you feel, obviously, a jungle implies a certain amount of danger, but uh, what of the outlaws? Were they the dangerous type? Did they deserve the, the, the name outlaw? Well, you know, the name, the name outlaws comes from the fact that uh, we were all living illegally without camping permits in the state park. That, that would, that's how we got the moniker outlaws. Mm. And uh, we would play a game called Ranger Scratch, where, you know, two, three times a year, the Rangers would fly in a helicopter and chase people around the valley. 
And if they caught you, then you got a ticket and you had to go out and pay, go to court and pay a fine. Back in the day when I did it, it was way cool. Uh, today it's become, you know, very 9-11-ish. <laughs> it's, all, you know, it's all been moved into a very regulated sort of thing. It used to be a party, you know, and now it's like, uh, now it's a serious game. But anyway, uh, back in the day, we would, uh, you know, play this game and, uh, and that was uh, the Ranger scratch and, and were there, and were there bad people there? You know, we never had any serious problems, um, with people, you know, when you live in a remote location and you have to depend upon each other for your survival, uh, it's hard to be a dick and get away with it, you know? <laughs> And if you are, eventually people will, you'll either leave or people will make you leave one or the other. So, mm. you know, that's usually the way it works. And there were, I never had any serious problems with anybody there. And, and uh, but, you know, but there were quite a number of alcoholics and people like that. They could be rowdy at times, but no serious problems that I could remember. Yeah, but there were a uh, certain type of people that I like the, this phrase, the drain bows. Can you get into that a little bit? What, oh, yeah, the drain, drain bow is. And I, well, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the drain bow thing is interesting because, you know, the outlaws, you know, we have a limited amount of resources and, and getting them in usually is difficult. So, you know, when people show up with nothing, we tend to, to not like that. And they've been getting train bows. However, uh, I tell a couple of stories in the book of where, uh, you know, where we've gotten very judgmental. There's a story about a guy named Ray who was talking about how they just had had it with the drain bows. No more nothing for anybody. And then uh, all of a sudden, while they're saying that, this guy shows up. And he starts asking for cigarettes and food, and they're like, they're just dumping on him. What's wrong with you? Didn't you hear what we were saying? And yet it turns out this guy was a German tourist who had accidentally gone off the cliff, you know, back at the lookout, and ended up wandering around the jungle for a couple of days and showed up hungry and, you know, hurt. And uh, and uh, the outlaws are like, well, I, I guess we're going to have to drop that dream, but because with this guy needs some help. <laughs> Yeah, no, I imagine when you're you're living in that way, you know, you got to rely on on people and you know, adding more people to the equation uh makes less for everyone else, right? I mean, it sort of feels like you're describing a uh well, a, an agrigorical society of some kind. I mean, w w did, was there a ideology that prevailed throughout the outlaws or was it sort of uh uh, ragtag in the sense that people were just there because of the 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 majesty of the forest the the park yeah no there's no uh, there was no set doctrines or dogmas or ideologies that we went by but uh there were a couple of hawaiians living in there like uh one of the hawaiians living in there had been two of both of the hawaiians who had been uh, living in there were called in by the almakua and the almakua who uh, are hard to describe in Western terms, but they would be something like a demigod or uh, something like that. You know, they're not quite gods, but they're not quite humans, and they have a lot of mana or power. And so they were called in by the Almakua, and one of them was called in to be the Kahu of the Heiau. The Kahu is a kind of like a priest or a minister or a caretaker, and the Heiau is a kind of a religious ceremonial place and his job was to maintain the heiau for the alakua 
And uh, the state didn't like that. <laughs> in fact, they don't really like anything, any Hawaiians trying to nestle in on the act where they stole that country. So, you know, he, they gave him a hard time. And so I tell that story in the book, too. I also tell the story of a, a guy named Cole Lau, the outlaw, who lived in there about 114 years earlier, where they, they came in for him with about 35 armed soldiers and a cannon. And he killed three of them with four shots, and then they left. That's, so that's the reason the book, too. Yeah, that's... But we don't, that's, we don't play that Ranger Scratch game anymore. Well, yeah, no, I understand why. That's uh, that's kind of what I, I was expecting, at least at first, um, sort of like a, a story of, you know, that, and I'm, I'm not sure because admittedly i haven't had the chance to go through the whole book but when it comes to any place that's been colonized you know i mean hawaii was as you said stolen and i think that's an appropriate way to describe it uh you have this suppression of the native culture i mean it's obvious it's happened numerous places across all seven continents but what really bothers me in light of recent conversations that we've had with people like Peter Shampoo is this notion that when the natives leave the land and the land is no longer tended in this way that the natives had cared for it, whoever those natives may be, there tends to be, you know, results of that. I mean, a very sort of, uh, cliche would be, uh, pet cemetery right this concept of you you build something on top of a, an indian burial ground and now that building's going to be haunted or or something or other but i i don't think it's as simple as that i i do think that you know performing ceremony the way that people have uh concurrently in certain places you know that has an effect and when you break that ancestral chain that lineage that ceremonial you know chain of events it has some really detrimental effects. I mean, you know, maybe even uh, weather, cataclysmic, who knows, maybe even the volcano response to that in some ways. I mean, pushing over a, a mall is certainly a, a sign. Unfortunately, it didn't get that far, or fortunately, depending on whose perspective you're you're looking from. But, uh, but yeah, can you speak to that struggle? Because I, as far as I know, I mean, Hawaii you know, the waters are so polluted around those naval bases that they can't even fish the way they had for centuries. Yeah, well, it's a sad story. And uh, and the ramifications continue on. And it's unhealed. And that's really the biggest problem. And, and, and I don't know how long it will go on. Unhealed, but, uh, you know, it's such a complicated story. But the easiest way to say it is this, that, that there were three major interests who wanted to take control of Hawaii, and they were uh, the business interests that came from New England, uh, the 1620, the, the, the great-grandchildren of the 1620 crew showed up as the missionaries. And then there was the military, U.S. military wanted these places for uh, their purposes. And so, and then, uh, you know, the, the business interests, and then there was the agricultural interests. And those three groups, the New England crew, uh, their descendants now, the U.S. military and the big agricultural companies, they all dominate and control uh, Hawaii. They, they 
they are the ones who call the shots and say what's going to happen and not happen. And the people have virtually no say in it at all. And that's unfortunate because they have not only destroyed the, uh, the country, they've not only done that, but they've destroyed the land in the process of doing that. The Aina, as they say, the, the land is called the Aina. So, uh, and uh, they're not, uh, they're not taking care of it. They're not, they, these people have abused it and used it and sucked it dry. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but that is the way it is. And I don't know what can be done to change it. Yeah, yeah. To uh, back up what you said about the New England crew, my recent research into New Haven, Skull and Bones, and Yale, uh, I found that the first missionary to Hawaii is from uh, Yale, and and the the guys who started Yale were also a part of this Stockbridge Indian Missionary School up in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and that kind of in a way, laid the blueprint for what was to come and and the fate of the Native Americans up until, you know, the West was, was settled. But it is interesting that Hawaii, I mean, uh, it, it I, I don't know the exact timetable, but I think it was sort of uh, very early that people were sent, you know, like you said, the, only the, the grandchildren of the first people that kind of settled here in New England uh, we're already all the way over there in Hawaii trying to to conquer that land as well. It just makes you wonder if they, they had some sort of knowledge of, of how special Hawaii was. Uh, I mean, it's, well, it's so far out yeah. in the in the ocean, you'd have to ask yourself like how they knew it was there to a certain extent. But, uh, but yeah. Well, you know, I, when I looked at the, I, I didn't really have a good sense of the history of Hawaii. And there's no way to really get a, a really good sense of the history of Hawaii because the Hawaiians were an oral culture and they had no written history until a, after the missionaries came. So anything about what happened in Hawaii after the arrival of Captain Cook in 1779 and the arrival of the missionaries uh, 40 years later in 1819, um, the question, there's no real good history about what happened, but we do know this, that everything that was before Captain Cook in 1779 was gone 40 years later when the missionaries arrived. Everything, everything, everything was gone. Wow. Yeah. And what had happened was Hawaii had been transformed into some Halley dystopian nightmare that had a puppet Hawaiian government running things. But the Hawaiians knew that they weren't really in control and that the Haoles were running things. But, you know, it was still a good gig. <laughs> so they went along with the game. Uh, but the, uh, what I found fascinating, and you may find this too in your research on these people, is that the game plan that they used seemed to be intentional because uh, it seems to be almost the same thing they did in New England. First, they, uh, Cook shows up and does some experimenting, and then the next thing you know, the missionaries show up when the time is right, and it turns out 1819, and they begin to reassemble a, a version of Hawaii based upon their concepts. You know, they, they produce the first written Hawaiian language, and so they uh, can essentially control the Hawaiian language from here on out. 
and they determine the meanings and the pronunciations and the sayings and all that sort of stuff. So they, they got that going for them. And then 20 or 30, 40 years after that, it's somewhere, it's somewhere around 1865-ish or 1869, I can't remember the exact date, they ban the use of Hawaiian in schools. So that now, you know, they, they're constantly doing things to destabilize the psychological state of the Hawaiians. First, they uh, fuck up their language, then they tell them they can't use their language, and then they, all of a sudden there's this disease that they call leprosy, and they got to start putting them in prison because they're sick. And they use this whole public health thing to control the population and to subjugate them into slavery. And it's really an interesting tactic because I've seen it used elsewhere. Right. Well, yeah, I think we've all seen a version of that over the past two years. And, uh, you know, I've always yeah. had, had the, the sense of, uh, you know, my grandparents who grew up in a rural environment and, and you know, let us play in the dirt and whatnot and didn't instill this hypochondriac sort of nature to us. So uh, it, it never felt like uh, a normal thing to sterilize everything. And, you know, but that seems to be very much the normal way about, you know, keeping your, your healthy, you know, keeping a healthy life. And I don't know. I no, mean, I yeah, I mean, geez, it's it's incredible what they've done, you know, and instilled this really hypochondriac syndrome in in people as if it's common sense, and and yeah, I'm sure. Well, you know, living I, in I the jungle in, goes contrary. I worked in the medical. <laughs> I worked in the cancer industry for 20 years, and so like I'm an insider. You you couldn't pay me to go give it to a doctor. I mean, I don't. I haven't had health insurance. That, you know, for I can't. I think the last time I had it was somewhere in my forties. I stopped doing that thing. Mm -hmm. I don't go to doctors unless I absolutely have to, and I've never had to. <laughs> so I just make sure I stay healthy by doing the things you need to do to stay healthy, and that's really all you need to do. And when you think about it, people have been kind of um, brainwashed into thinking they need health insurance. When in fact, it, the only reason they need health insurance is because they keep going to physicians who keep prescribing these drugs for them so that they can continue to be coming back for more drugs and more therapy and more this and more that and build up a client base that makes them profitable and you broke paying for the insurance and all the other charges. It's, it's a racket and people should kind of wake up to it, I guess. Yeah, no, it, it's planned obsolescence applied to our health in a way. I mean, they, they're they planning our own fate gradually uh, and then prescribing for that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible. I really appreciate your insights into the Hawaiian culture because you make a really great point about the, the language and how language, especially written language, has been used to control the narrative and give us a picture of of these you know so-called savages that inhabited north and south america and all of the islands throughout the pacific and australia and beyond and you know it's just really upsetting to think of what was lost uh in though in that time period and and how history has sort of been rewritten around that and uh and yeah, that's a that's a very big interest of mine is, is sort of sorting through that 
So I appreciate it. But when it comes to the, these outlaws, they had a, a library you mentioned, and I'm curious uh, what that library consisted of. Was it a magical library? Did it have any sort of uh, spiritual, occult sort of books in it? Was it just a sort of general collection? What What was the, the thing about this library? Well, how, where the books came from is really hard to precisely put down but obviously it must have come from people who are hiking in and uh it, it's common for people to overpack for the call out trail hike and uh work for any hike for that matter and then when they get in and they realize how difficult it's going to be to go back out they get rid of everything they don't need and sometimes even stuff they think they need like their tents and their backpacks and anything else they just get rid of everything so a book collection accumulates and then pretty soon, and of course the people hiking in are very interested people. So they bring in quite a few different kinds of books. And I remember the first time I ever ran into a David Icke book was in Colorado Valley. And I read it and I thought, oh, well, this guy made up the lizard thing so they don't kill him. <laughs> that, I mean, I like that angle. I often wondered myself, although Going back to the Native American conversation, I have a friend who is from the Southwest. He grew up, uh, he's a Native American. He grew up in a sort of somewhat uh, traditional way, at least for his, you know, for this time period. And he had the privilege of going to a peyote ceremony where underground, out of his body, he met a lizard woman. That's how he described it, a goddess, lizard goddess. So ever since that story, I have I have thought twice about David Icke's work and the, the validity <laughs> of reptilians, but I do agree with you that that is a very clever way to throw the uh, assassins off your, <laughs> off your back because, yeah, if you go out and call out some of these <laughs> families, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a whole list of people who aren't as famous as David Icke who have lost their lives yeah. doing exactly what he's done. So yeah, I don't right. Yeah. Him. You look at, you look at what he, I was looked at what he said. I said, wow, you know, this guy's got balls, but you know, this lizard thing is a great cover because you know, there's no way anybody, you know, like I said, they killed the lizard guy for why? Right, 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 right. Well, and that is, but yeah. he could be right. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying, I thought at that time it seemed to me, I, in fact, almost anything he said in there, except for the lizard thing, I was on board with. When, I, when he got to that, I was like, I don't know about that stuff. You know? Yeah. It no, sounds like a good cover. That hadn't <clears throat> occurred to me. Maybe I'm showing my age, but uh, in a way, more my naivete. But yeah, that hadn't occurred to me. And I do like that thought. I mean, especially as someone who's looking into things that are kind of uh, in the same vein, you know, going back to the New Englanders and all that. But uh, but anyways, yeah, so you have this interesting library. You have some interesting characters. The spiritual pizza, pizza develops, and you have a bunch of really neat stories here in this book. What would you say to somebody who is potentially on the fence about buying your book? I mean, what what would be the the main pitch? You worked in sales. I mean, how how would you <laughs> how would you give this to someone who maybe has never been to Hawaii? You know, what what value does it have to to someone like that? Well, you know, first of all, I wouldn't encourage anybody to buy the book, but I figure that uh, the people that will buy the book are the people that are supposed to buy the book. And uh, 
Mm. I wrote the book for me and a lot of the outlaws like it. Some of them don't. And the people that will get this book, it, it will be just like the spiritual pizza was, you know, we didn't do any advertising for that, but, uh, but people found it anyway. And so, so people will find this too. But if you're, if you're thinking about, uh, let's say you're in your life right now and you're not feeling like you're moving in a direction you want to move in, but you don't know how to change. Well, this isn't a how-to book, but you could read about how I face those difficulties and what kind of, kind of decisions I made in the face of hard choices and what happened when I did that. And uh, you may gain some insights for yourself. On the other hand, there are a lot of good laughs in this book. I mean, you know, if you want to have a laugh or two, I would check it out. I mean, we've, we've got some good stories in there about uh, outlaw adventures that are, you know, a good hoot. Well, and I especially so, yeah. look forward to that through the audio book. I'm sure it'll be a fun listen. Uh, and that's, that's exciting. You don't see a lot of books of this type coming out with audio books concurrently. So I appreciate that. I think I'll, I'll give it a listen as well. But um, yeah, I agree. Oh, the, the audio, I personally, I mean, I like the written book and sort of the people that have read it. But uh, I personally think the audio book is, is superior because... Uh, so there was a guy, and there's an outlaw named Larry, who had uh, spent uh, a lot of time recording um, video and audio in Colorado Valley between 2008 and 2010 or something like that. So he gave me his archive to work with. So the audio book is, is laced with soundtracks from Colorado Valley, with people singing, people talking. Um, you know, people talking about their stories. Uh, it, it, so it, an outlaw friend of mine says, you know, I felt like I was back in the valley. <laughs> so, so I think the audiobook brings another dimension to the experience that, uh, the, that the print book doesn't. And, uh, and you can get the, uh, the audio book directly from me on my website at buzzcoasting.com. It's pretty, pretty clear about how to do it. So just head over there and you'll be able to find it. And, and if you go there and you're interested in the print book, there's a link that'll take you right to the Amazon link. You can buy it there. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Thank you. Yeah. I, I definitely think that's a, a really neat way to encapsulate a story you know like you said adding another dimension to it hearing uh the voices of the people you know helps you sort of create you know vision in your mind of who these people are better than you can just from reading their words on print that's really really neat so when it comes to hawaii and the energy and these synchronicities that ultimately you know lead to things like this coming to fruition and obviously people from all walks of life can read your book and maybe gleam some lessons from it and obviously as you said you know help them you know tune their compass as to where they should go next but are there any particular uh, tips that you have for people maybe questioning whether they're in that moment, any signs that you recognize that particularly stood out to you, things that kind of you know smacked you across the head, so to speak, when you realized it? Well, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, my life has been kind of guided by synchronicity. So I, I got into corporate sales, again, by accident at age 28. 
And um, and my career uh, continued to move forward. Uh, and uh, it always happened because somebody uh, called me up and offered me a lot more money to do something that I could do very easily. And I would always do it. And that went on for about, I don't know, 10, more than 10 years, maybe 20 years. And then uh, at the point where I was at this crossroads, nobody was calling me up and asking me and looking to pay me a lot of money to do something I could do easily. Nobody was calling me up at all. And I thought, this has got to be some kind of sign, you know, <laughs> like all these people called all before and now no calls, you know, this doesn't make any sense. This, mm-hmm. Something's happening here. I ought to pay attention to it. And then I saw I was running out of money and I needed a miracle to save me. So the vision quest uh, was part of that process of trying to secure that miracle, which it did. I ended up, you know, finding what I needed and it, it happened. I got the money. I, my ass was pulled out of the fire again for another year. And, um, you know, I, I but, and I think that the, the main point that I'd like to make is that if you're going to take a leap into the unknown, trust that the unknown is going to support you in that leap because it will. Yeah. I think that's really an important point to highlight because, you know, people often find themselves in a rut and it's hard to, to feel the momentum or or get the momentum going again. But I think your story kind of demonstrates how once you get that momentum going, it doesn't stop, you know, there's, there's more. And, and, you know, if people could sort of trick themselves into happiness in a way, uh, they can maybe, uh, yield the, the reflection of that, you know, because what we, what we project out into the universe reflects back to us. I mean, uh, has, has your experience with money followed since then? I mean, you seem like you're in a great place, you know, obviously writing a book takes up a lot of time, uh, and energy. So you've been able to afford that. Uh, has your, your luck still maintained? Oh yeah. I've always had enough. I've never had too much. I've never had too little. I've always had enough. And, uh, and having enough is, is a state I like to be in. Uh, having more than enough, it would only be, you know, a burden. <laughs> right. I like I, I I like that. I like the the ability uh, to do that. But yeah, I've always been supported in in my efforts, and it always comes about quite unexpectedly. Uh, but not, it's a miracle. But it's not a miracle of like money bags drop out of heaven and I just take cash out. It's more like stuff that is in my life that I never anticipated would somehow produce for me what I needed at that time. And uh, that's about the easiest way I can explain it without going into some really detailed stories. But what I needed has always appeared at just the right time. I usually think it's like a little bit late, but it's always at the right time. And it always saves my ass. And it always seems to work that way. I really can't explain why it's not any method or doing or anything. It just, I think requires that you expect it to happen. And I, and I tell in the book, a story about the, the, the people I call the hippie kids from Pune who are considered rainbows. And um, they always expected the unexpected. And that's why they were considered rainbows because they never prepared for anything. They just thought this shit's going to show up. Why bother? And it always did for them. 
And so why bother? And I tell a story in the book of how uh, I had an interaction with them. Uh, it's not worth telling here. But at the end, I end up having a birthday party with them on the Kalalau Trail. And, uh, and they didn't provide anything except the intent for it to happen. And it happened. <laughs> and I tell that story, too. Yeah, there's a, there's a Zen to that, you know. It's like the the Big Lebowski. I, I see you you mention him at some point in your book, but uh, right. yeah, it it is that dude kind of mentality uh, where to the outsider, by all appearances, it's like, oh, this guy's, you know, what does he have to offer? When you know, to someone who takes a, a closer look realize that that person has everything they need and there's a certain magic to that i think you know it it's it's unique in a way to our uh, american uh, commercial culture this sort of slacker uh image you know but it's also it's also kind of a fill-in in a way for uh, the monk or the shaman of some kind uh when you look at it from that big lebowski angle you know it it doesn't uh it doesn't it, it's almost like the fool in a way like you you don't realize the the wit or the knowledge behind it even the person themselves maybe doesn't realize it well you know another thing is that uh, people are conditioned to think that they need to live up to the expectation of others and that's just nonsense <laughs> you know it's your life and you are the one paying the price for it. You're the one living it. And you don't need to live up to anybody's expectations mm. except your own. And even then, don't be hard on yourself. You know, why be why do that? I hear people a lot of times say that they, they don't like themselves or they beat themselves up mentally. And I think, why? I mean, you know, you may be the only friend you have. <laughs> why beat yourself up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it took me a few years to realize that when I was younger and uh, you know i'm not perfect we all go back and forth with that but uh i do feel like since this podcast has started it's it's been a lot easier to not beat myself up because i have something that i'm consistently doing that i'm proud of and uh and other people get value out of it but when it comes to you know each particular person, you know we all have a certain archetype uh, of of some kind. Uh, you make the point some midway through the book about watching your sidereal zodiac, and I wonder what are your thoughts on astrology in general? Because I mean, you know, not many people know the difference between the sidereal and um, you know what's it. Uh, uh, Babylonian yeah, I, I, forget, astrology. I forget what the official name of Western astrology is. <laughs> yeah, we topical, all know. I think it's yeah, thank you. Tropical, I think it's tropical. Yeah. I like to I'm call it sure. Babylonian, but yeah, tra tropical. Yeah, there you go. Tropical right. astrology. So, so yeah. What what are your thoughts on that? Because you point that out briefly here, and I'm wondering, you know, what what the distinction for you with sidereal versus uh, well, I, I think. Um, my own personal opinion about astrology and all sorts of oracles is that it's, it's just a way of uh, accessing the unconscious, that that imaginable part of our reality that we have such a hard time accessing is accessed through those type of devices. I, I, I pay attention to astrology to a certain degree. You know, I, I know my signs and all that sort of stuff. You know, I know my chart and all those transit stuff, but... 
I'm really not 100% sure it has uh, significant implications for me. But uh, on the other hand, I use the I Ching when I want to access my unconscious. And uh, I have found it to be a much more uh, effective way of accessing it for me. And I get better answers than I would get, say, if I was using astrology. Mm. So, but I do think they, they all just reflect a, a way of accessing the unconscious. I don't think there's necessarily any powers in planets or any, any special thing about, you know, throwing uh, dice or yarrow sticks or digital coins, but nonetheless, those things give you access to information that you can then ponder. It doesn't give you a direct answer. Even astrology doesn't tell you exactly what's going on, but you get enough information to have an imaginal experience and, and become creative, and who knows what can come out of that, and that information can help you build an even better life. So if you have some oracle system you like, and it works for you, use it. Mm. Yeah, and, and on the point of uh, you know planetary or heavenly influences, you also make a note of full moon parties uh, in Kalalau. I'm sorry, I'm not pronouncing right. that correctly, but uh, no, New York, yeah, Kalalau's right. Kalalau. Okay, cool. So yeah, you have these full moon parties, and you know the term lunatic comes from uh, lun- lunar. Uh, and lunacy, and I like to call the listeners of this show uh, lunatics sometimes. So uh, <laughs> it's a, a friendly term around here. But what what are your thoughts on the the full moon parties and the the energy of the full moon over Hawaii? Well, you know, uh, so when I moved to Hawaii, none of this is in this book, but uh, so I'll, this is new stuff. <laughs> Uh, when I moved to Hawaii, I moved into this little neighborhood, and I and there were people there, and but and a lot of the people were young kids. Uh, a lot of the adults were my age, but the kids were, you know, my kids' ages. They were in their twenties, and for some reason, I was the guy in the neighborhood that all these people hung out with, and so uh, and they would always invite me to do stuff with them. And whenever the full moon parties would come up, you know, we, we would I would go to the full moon parties with them. And uh, they were they were usually held at, at hard to get to beaches, and those hard to get to beaches are getting even harder to get to, or hard to hard to find anymore. But anyway, we used to go to these hard to get to beaches, and then uh, they would they would set up these giant speakers, and they would do these kind of full moon raves and go on you know all night until the sun came up. And I w- I went to many of those on the Big Island. Now in Kalalau, the full moon parties are. A lot more mellow, you know, no electronic music, and uh, and uh, you know, no big crowds. But uh, nonetheless, you know, you could have a good party for a full moon thing. You know, do a sweat lodge, and then you know, have a little full moon party, have a spiritual pizza, and then call it a night. Mm, right <laughs> but, on. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, you find that sort of thing in Hawaii that you don't find uh, on the mainland as much. I I lived on the east coast of the United States for you know. I don't know, 30 years more. Maybe. And um, I never recall a full moon party. <laughs> you know, of course, you know, the social circles I hang out with in corporate America, you know, nobody was doing full moon parties and stuff like that. So it's not unusual that I wouldn't hear of it. I'm sure in other circles I would have. Mm. Yeah, no, it definitely, uh, when you add the sweat lodge in there, it definitely feels like uh Something that's a, a rite of passage to this landscape, you know, that's another thing my uh, friend Amos taught me about, that he would do a lot of sweat lodges as a part of, you know, his culture, and 
you also mentioned going out and gathering shellfish, which is interesting because you. Oh yeah, it's another yeah. sort of activity that's but, close to the native consciousness. Yeah, this was an e- this was an easy thing to do. In some ways, it's easy. You know, I had to go all the way down to the rocks below, which was an ordeal, and then uh, pry these little uh, shellfish off the rocks and. Um, it's great fun, it's, you know, and uh, you get, you get, they taste a little like clams. I would bring them back to the camp and cook them up with some uh, little wine and water and stuff and garlic and, and make a little linguine with the uh, uh, opini. So it was cool. Yeah, there, you know, there was one of the few for, food sources that were easy to come by, but, you know, you couldn't get a big meal out of it. And uh, it always took a lot of work. So not, not everybody was spending hours a day down there to, to peeling them off the rocks. Mm. Yeah, that's uh that's a rare treat. I'm sure it, it was fun to to bring that uh, you know, fine dining element into things using what was locally available. It's that's really cool. Well, well right. we we had a guy, we had a, a fisherman, a guy we called Surfer Fish. And uh he used to catch these giant fish called the lua and they're really really tasty. And you can't get them commercially, but uh, we we get a fair amount of supply. Wherever he was in the valley, he would be out there in his little kayak hunting them down and and they could feed a group of outlaws for a couple of days. Right on. Yeah. And there's in the latter part of the book a little something about a uh some lost tapes that were recorded in a <laughs> recording studio. What's the story with these things? Well, uh, so uh, the last time I, when I left Kalalau Valley in, in uh, <clears throat> April of 2004, I had decided I wanted to do a little CD with uh, my friend Ali Kai. And so uh, we tried to record some of his songs. We did record some of his songs at a recording studio in, uh, uh, near us. And then, uh, and then we just never, the thing just never took off and we never finished his album and it all kind of fell apart. But when I was putting this audio CD together, I pulled out some of his old uh, recordings and I've worked them into uh, this audio book. So, uh, in fact, there's a, there's a, there's one I use a couple of times in there where uh, he's in the recording booth and things aren't going well. It takes it three times to get the song started. So. It's a pretty funny scene, but that's on the audio book and you can hear it too. But yeah, Ali Kai is a great voice and you can hear some of his uh, song, his, his playing. I was listening to these recordings. I hadn't listened to them in a long time and they're 20 years old now at this point. And I'm thinking, man, that guy is, his voice is solid and his playing is excellent. You know, I can't believe that he didn't make it big, but, uh, but uh, it was, it was good stuff. Yeah. So that's really cool. I'm glad that uh, that we heard that. You know, it adds a little dimension again to the the audio book. Now, when it comes to your trips afterwards, you you did a sort of uh, uh, one type of trip, a mental trip, and then you went on uh, a series of trips afterwards. Can we talk a little bit about this LSD experience? Uh, <laughs> Sure. I mean, I have no problem with that. I, I've done a lot of psychedelics, and, and you know, but it, I have very boring stories. I n- I've never had any kind of. Uh, and the first psychedelics I ever did, uh, it was pretty trippy. Uh, that was, you know, like when I was eighteen, and I became a Jesus freak shortly thereafter. So that was a pretty heavy trip. But um, 
since then, and the few times I've done L LSD, uh, not much has happened. Although the last time, uh, this is interesting. So I, in the book, I tell the story of the guy who walks into our camp, although I last stay there, and he offers everybody a handhead of some acid. And I can't remember how, but I ended up having some tabs to take with me. And I was on my way to Germany uh, to do a business, my last consulting gig ever. And um, when I got there, the CFO was a deadhead and he had done a lot of acid in this time. So I said, oh, dude, I got some tabs with me. We'll just drop here at night and have a good time. So we did some acid and, uh, and you know, it was, it was cool. We listened to some music and then I went to bed and I had this dream that he was trying to seduce me back into the business world. <laughs> And, uh, and that was my, that was my last acid trip. Uh, so, oh, but no. in Colorado, it wasn't that, it wasn't that big, but when I moved into that neighborhood, I told you about the, the place in Ocala with the little grass shack, there was a cow pasture, um, you know, not more than football field away from me. So I would go up there in the morning and, uh, collect, uh, psilocybin mushrooms and then stick them in uh, honey in a jar. And I'd make this honey, uh, mushroom tea and then you know whenever it was a full moon party or a reason to have a party we always had this mushroom tea handy for everybody that wanted it oh wow yeah and I, I gotta ask you for that uh recipe there and i'm very interested in that <laughs> very cool. well you just put just soak your shrooms in a, in a big jar of honey and uh, fill it up as much as you can you know i could grow out every day i pick up you know i don't know several ounces of shrooms every day and I just bring them back and stick them in the jar and let, let them marinate in the honey. And, you know, the, the honey would get all kind of black and blue, you know, and, uh, you know, it was cool. I'd take them to full moon parties and we'd, we'd sip them and have a good time. Right on. Wow. I did not, uh, did not know that was possible. I had heard that. Well, very interesting. So you spent some time traveling through Asia too. And, you know, I really want to compliment your effort on demonstrating, you know, the magic of, of place, you know, whether or not that was your goal. I, I sort of sense that from looking over your book is there's, there's a magic to this place. And in a way you're, you're encapsulating that with your story. And I, I think that's really inspiring for people. It's partly why we started this new podcast, Esoteric America, to get these kind of stories and talk about all these different places and even the the lost remnants, the things that have been written out of history. But, uh, but when it comes to going across the ocean even further than Hawaii out to Asia, I mean, geez, I'm sure there were uh, some eventful things taking place there. Any synchronicities that took place in Asia? <laughs> Well, you know, again, the Asia story is a whole, uh, a whole another book, too. But, but uh, the, the long and short of it is I, I went to Asia. I spent about um, six, nine months there, came back to the States for six, nine months, and then returned to Hawaii thinking I was going back into Kalalau. Didn't work out, so I got on a plane and went back to Southeast Asia, figuring I'd only stay six months there and come back to Hawaii. And I ended up living there six more years and didn't get back to Hawaii for quite a while. I ended up, I, so I ended up going back to Thailand and uh, uh, some friends of mine were there that I had knew from my previous trip. And uh, they urged me to go to Burma. You got to go to Burma, man. You got to go to Burma. And they told me where to stay and what to do. 
So I did. And when I was there, I met this Chinese girl in Inlay Lake. And uh, one thing led to another. And uh, I ended up visiting her in Beijing. And then I ended up living in Beijing for four years. We got married. And I lived in China for four years in Beijing. And, uh, and that's kind of the thumbnail of my, my Asia experience. But as to synchromystic places, let me tell you about some of the experiences I had. So uh, I've been to Angkor Wat twice. I like Angkor Wat. It's cool, you know. No, I, I and I and uh, not just Angkor Wat, but the whole temple complex. You know, not just that one, but the other ones, Bayon and all that. Really good stuff. Um, when I was there, you know, which is now almost fifteen years ago, it was a lot less commercial than I'm sure it is now. But it's really cool. But if you want to go to a really, really rocking, knock your socks off spiritual site in Asia, uh, I highly recommend the Shwedagon which is in Rangoon, Burma. And uh, it's a thousand-year-old meditation site that's been active that whole thousand years. And it's really trippy, you know. So I highly recommend it. It's not, it's not well-traveled, you know what I mean? Like Burma is really off the beaten path. And uh, the Shwedagon, you know, you've got to kind of know about it. And so uh, if you get there, that it's really worth the trip. And Burma itself is really worth the trip. It's a, it's a really wild place. But uh, I don't know if it's banned right now or not. You know, it's always wacky about Burma. Mm. Yeah, Burma is interesting. I, I recently read uh, some things about Burma while looking into the very infamous Alistair Crowley, who spent some time in Asia too. He was uh, he was over there for various different reasons. But uh, mm. yeah, I didn't know it. Yeah, yeah I, I think that I, I personally, you know, uh, going back to the synchronistic uh, place thing, I will say this, that although I knew play of Colin was being special, and it is, it's very special. But, you know, uh, we used to talk about this a lot. And Ronnie, the mayor, he, he used to always say, you know, the mana is everywhere. And that's really the truth, you know, like Colin is special or at least it was special to me, and it was to those of us there, but you can have that Colorado experience anywhere. You don't have to be at a special place to have it. It can't help, but you can have that experience anywhere. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I think often people, you know, um, underestimate the potential of their own backyard, you know, and... Uh, and yeah. It's it's always really cool to take a closer look and and sometimes it takes you know quitting your job and and starting fresh in a new place. I mean that's really bold and and inspiring. I'm sure I was in a position like that before this podcast started, where I was a delivery guy at Amazon. I was you know being told I needed to wear a mask and all these other you know crazy things and I just had it out I said I'm done I quit and I I took you know a chance with this podcast and and things have been going really well and I feel like we can relate there you know with your going out on a limb and and potentially being as you said you know kind of broke in the in this like one a little shack in in uh the jungle with running water you know I mean that's it's quite the journey, and uh, I'm yeah. sure many people listen well, you know, can relate. And, and we all, you know, I was thinking, I listened to uh, something you said a, a few days ago on another one of your podcasts, and 
you were mentioning that you got started with Joseph Campbell, you know, Campbell, uh, uh, somehow you got a hold of some Joseph Campbell tapes and started listening to them. And that kind of got you moving in a certain direction. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. And so that, the same sort of thing happened to me, not, not tapes. This was much earlier before you were born. I ran into, uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, by accident, not him personally, but his reputation. And I began to read his works because of that. And I would have to say that because of that experience, I was going at that time, I was going through a major, major transition in my life. I mean, I, my life blew up for about five years and Joe Campbell stuff hit me just as that started happening. And it carried me through that whole process, that hero's journey, that, that you know, all that sort of thing. It really helped me move through it. And uh, so we share that uh, link with Joe Campbell for sure. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to see, you know, his impact on culture. And yeah, as you said, I found the the tapes. It was on Spotify. I don't know if they're still available on Spotify, but uh, at that point in time they were. And I had recently uh, realized that I could listen to things while working. <laughs> Up to that point, I just listened to music while I was working, you know, whether I was a delivery guy or at this point I was washing dishes I remember and I just yeah fell in love I was in a trance with these lectures I I would listen to some of them multiple times just because I I felt like um like the first listen it was like a subconscious listen and then the second time was like a conscious listen so I really spent time kind of letting that information soak in um, mostly because I had the instinct that said like, well, you're going to see this stuff in other places too. And and at that point in time, I had read uh, a book like the secret history of the world by Mark Booth. So I already had right. that kind of plant it, seed planted of like, well, there's all these things in history that you don't know about and they're fascinating. So yeah, I love Joseph Campbell. I wish I had uh I had access to those lectures still. I, I have to go check on, on Spotify and see if they're still there. But, uh, yeah, that's very... I think well, you know, it's. It, I mean, I had, I had a similar experience with uh, the audio part. Uh, one time, uh, so I had been reading Campbell for about a year. And uh, one day I was in a hotel listening to PB. I had the TV on and PBS was on. And I was getting ready to go to dinner. And I heard this guy talking and I said, man, you know, that guy is either Joseph Campbell or he's read everything Joseph Campbell written because I, I, that's Joseph Campbell. And it was, it turned out to be Joe Campbell being interviewed by Gil Moyers. And I bootlegged a tape of that. And, um, and I listened to it, I don't know, hundreds of times, you know, it, 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 it really, I mean, it, mm -hmm. it was so helpful, but I just had to listen to it to over and over to finally let it sink in. And uh, it, it really changed my life. Joe, Joe Campbell's work was really helpful to me in many ways. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And it's made its way into, you know, works like Star Wars, which before I ever knew about Joseph Campbell, you know, as a kid, I was watching all the Star Wars movies. So whether I knew it or not, that kind of uh, the yeah. archetypes at least were present. Right. And I think that's that's something that becomes really fun when you look at the symbolism behind 
uh, mythology and how it makes its way into pop culture, it, it kind of gives you a different look. Because I personally, I don't have a television. We don't watch television in my apartment, but we uh, we we do watch certain things from time to time. And and I think that's that's like the the detective in me that likes seeing the symbolism in certain movies. You know, movies that are yeah. are not totally yeah. you know full of propaganda. Yeah, you know, I, I have a hard time watching. Right. I have a hard time watching movies and TV for that same reason. You know, I spot the programming right away and I'm not interested in the programming. So it makes it tough for me to enjoy it because it's not all the, on all the time. They're just popping it in when they need to. So I can turn out of it. But you know what I have? Something I have watched that you may find interesting too is um, Rick and Morty. I don't know if you've tuned into that. But uh, that guy, Dan Harmon, is onto something. And uh, it's definitely not mainstream, but it's, it's definitely interesting. Hmm. It, there, is this, uh, there is this one segment that's worth looking at. You can find it on YouTube called Roy, A Life Well Lived. And it's a one-minute sketch that completely explains human existence from the idea that you're living in a video game. Now, I don't think we're literally living in a video game, but I think that's a good analogy for what we're living in. And Roy, a life well lived, really, you know, explains that in about 60 seconds. And it's really funny at the same time. Mm. So something you should check it out. And also, I saw uh, season six, episode two, they play on the Roy thing once again. And and uh, and uh, Morty gets stuck in the video game. And Roy's got to... And, and, uh, and Rick's got to go in and pose as Roy to be able to get everybody to come out. He gets a look, looks like he's a cult leader and trying to get people to join a religion. It's really funny. So you got to check out that too. It's, it's worth, it's worth it. And it's a good laugh too. Right on. Yeah. I, I'm aware of Rick and Morty. I haven't sat down and watched much of it, so I'll, I'll have to go and look that up, but uh, yeah, I'm sure. To be honest I, with you, those two are the only things worth watching, but the others are pretty good. But those things are just over the top. Okay. insightful and excellent uh, representations of the reality the so-called reality well i know that uh dan Harmon. i think he's in he's interviewed with duncan trussell so he he definitely has uh has duncan's ear and duncan has a certain interest in you know metaphysics and spirituality and the occult so yeah i i guarantee that the that there's some uh, overtones or undertones to Rick and Morty from uh, the little I've seen, but Buzz, this has been really. Well, uh, Harmon, Go ahead. I think Harmon has said publicly that he's a fan of Joe Campbell's stuff. So uh, okay. you know, his whole. Yeah, in fact, he has a whole story arc uh, theory that's based on the hero's journey huh. uh, that he tries to compose uh, his stories with. If you look up Dan Harmon's story, uh, you'll probably uh, find that, that chart that shows his idea about. It. Yeah, it's, I, it's basically the hero's journey. I don't know if um if this is the same person, but I think I I heard about Dan Harmon working on a project that was like uh takes takes place in like you know something BC in Greece, and and it was sort of like uh <laughs> you know I, I'm sure you know based on things he learned from from Joseph Campbell, but. I could be confusing him with someone else. Uh, but yeah, definitely a, an avenue for people to go down if they're interested in this type of, of symbology. But of course, we want to tell people to go and check out your book, Spiritual Pizza. The mana is everywhere. And uh, obviously the audiobook that accompanies that uh, we've talked about. But 
Is there a certain website folks can go to, a main page where all this stuff is listed? Yeah, the best the best place to go is buzzcoasting.com. And uh and there you will see the links to all the things I'm offering. So there's a link to the print book, which will take you directly to Amazon. There's a link to the audiobook, which you could buy from me. There's a link to free stuff, and there is a link to about me, where I also plug my book once again. So uh that's where you can go, buzzcoasting.com and uh got everything you need there make it your homepage. <laughs> wonderful wonderful buzzcoasting.com folks and uh the link will be in the description so just go in whatever app you're listening to this show on go in the description and check it out buzz thank you for joining me thank you for reaching out and uh yeah i really appreciate you uh putting this into print and giving people a, a, a slice so to speak of this spiritual Hi, that is Hawaii. So uh, until next time, folks, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Buzz Coaston. And I got to apologize to Buzz. I did not have enough time to read his book. It did look like a cool book. It did look interesting. I was just sort of skimming it during our conversation. And uh, yeah, I don't normally like to do that. I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. Uh, Buzz and I had a couple of misfires with the scheduling and we finally made it happen uh, on a week where I had all these other things I was researching. So I was just sort of reeling uh, from all these other topics and then jumped into a whole different headspace with Buzz. And uh, I think Buzz listens to the show. I will say uh, on a point of uh, some maybe positive criticism, I don't know if that's the right phrase, it seemed like Buzz wasn't really willing to to get into the story. He was happy just saying, you know, oh, and I wrote about this in my book, which I don't know about you listeners, but when I'm listening to a podcast, I do not like to hear stuff like that. Yes, of course, we want to help Buzz sell books, but hey, Buzz, you got to let us in on a little bit of the juice if we're going to buy the book. You know what I'm saying? So if it sounded a little awkward at times, that was me trying to push Buzz to uh, share more than it seemed he was willing to share. And I was not aware of that because in a previous interview I'd listened to, uh, the chemistry was much different. So uh, I don't know what to chalk that up to, but I did like speaking with Buzz. I think he's a nice guy. He's clearly got some interesting thoughts and experiences to share uh not our traditional background but i guess his family thinks he's crazy too right so he's a part of the family here 
we are almost at episode 250. They're about two years and three months into this podcast, almost two years and two months, actually. Two years and two months, so very happy to be here. Made it this far, and we're going to keep going strong. Like I said, this week you can expect an episode every day until 2023. Of course, we got to give a big shout out to everybody supporting on Patreon. If you're not already supporting on Patreon, you're missing out. I've just recently started publishing my Substack articles, the private Substack articles to Patreon as well. Uh, And I'm also narrating my Substack articles and posting those to Patreon. So if you want to hear about some interesting where's waldo connections to voodoo dolls go and check out that or maybe learn more about saint germain and his possible um, occupation as a spy or you can read i haven't narrated these yet but you can read some of my research the beginnings of my research on new haven I title it Armageddon or New Heaven. Uh, They say that New Haven is supposed to mean New Harbor, but I think it has something to do with uh, New Heaven and and the idea of an apocalypse or an Armageddon or second coming of some kind. But anyways, more about that on the Substack. You can, of course, subscribe directly to the Substack subscribe substack and then you will be subscribed to our email list so you get an email every time i publish a new post on substack uh, you'll get the articles directly in your email and subscribers get all of the articles right away uh, for only eight dollars a month so if you like that kind of content you can go there for that i'm not sure but i'm almost certain you can post videos to Substack. So depending on how much space and how much time it takes, I may publish my videos to Substack as well. So that'll be Patreon, Rockfin, Substack, and of course YouTube. I do publish certain interviews on YouTube, but I don't want to get my channel stricken. I've seen Donut recently. Shout out to our friend Donut. If you don't know, his main channel got... Uh, a month suspension so go support his other account it's just donut d-o-e-n-u-t uh, also big shout out to charlie robinson we just aired my interview on his show uh, he gave me a shout out in his 2022 wrap-up so i'm giving him a shout out right now in our 2022 end of the year jam-packed finale for the year And then we're coming out with all new episodes right away in January 2023. Coming strong. We got Maryam Heinen coming on the show soon. Uh, Like I said, Donut um, and so much more. So please, folks, support on Rockfin or Patreon or with a one-time donation. Shout out to a few people that that sent a sort of one-time donation for the holidays. I really appreciate them and they are going to get a shout out. Patrick. S, Reese S, and Gabby M. Uh, although Gabby was donating uh, when she heard about my car troubles. So thank you to all three of you so much. I hope you all had happy holidays, and I hope everyone listening has a happy new year. 
It's not too late. Send us a one-time donation, please. Uh, PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, all of the addresses are in the episode description. It's not that hard. Just open up the app where you hit play, uh, click more info, and you'll see all of the info that I put in each episode description from the names of the musicians whose music makes its way into the episode to the various social media links uh, to the guest links and of course all of the ways to support the show because we can't do it without you this is a value for value show Uh, we have occasionally uh, sponsors and I like to be very specific and uh, stringent with my selections for who gets to sponsor this podcast this is a my family thinks i'm crazy podcast we're not going to let corporate interests come in and squander the indie magic that is my family thinks i'm crazy so with that being said go and support the independent employee-owned company hit kit Uh, that's right hit kit i'm pretty sure he employs only one person and that's himself he is making some really sweet gadgets a really cool way to make sure that whatever you're smoking stays safe and crumple crinkle free you don't want to get all these flattened joints in your sock or in your pocket you know next thing you know you're blunt it was in your pocket and then it undoes itself and then you have the ingredients to a blunt in your pocket that's happened to me before folks you don't want that to happen because once you do that you can't re-roll that blunt now you got pocket lint now you got little fuzzies you got some loose pennies maybe a receipt you know don't do that don't even go over to hitkit.us they got a bunch of different styles and the best part is it doesn't just hold your weed it holds your lighter as well so Go and check out hitkit.us and support this podcast when you do. Also, you can buy yourself an Aqua Cure. That's right. I do recommend you listen to my interview with George Wiseman. When you do, use the promo code MFTIC and you'll get a very, very large discount on that life saving device. It's a great way to round out your health, whether you're an athlete. Whether you're a smoker like me or you're somebody who just wants to have optimal health, look into the AquaCure. Like I said, be sure to use promo code MFTIC uh, when you make that purchase. And I think that promo code applies to anything in the store. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. But uh, thank you so much, folks. Have a happy new year. Uh, But stay tuned. We're going to be bringing you new and old episodes all week uh we're gonna be airing swap casts that i forgot to air or guest appearances that i've made in 2022 along with new episodes like the one you just heard today so thank you so much folks and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now mftic yeah Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the 
mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages, hijacking perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it the system is unraveling I'm astral traveling Through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth Like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up In the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian bases Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robin Fulber's plasma gun Hop in the ship Take the controls they highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy, you might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are we the ones who gonna expose the whole facade.